agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, Mike. Hey. Good afternoon. Hey, how are you doing this afternoon, Jay? Well, I've, uh, like uh, President Biden, I got no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Harkening back to last week's uh, somewhat inauspicious comment about classified documents, and we have more classified documents to talk about, uh, a whole bunch of other things actually as well this week. We're going to be talking about that big Department of Justice lawsuit against Google, uh, the tanks to Ukraine, tanks from everywhere to Ukraine, uh, some uh, little problems, I guess, with NATO expansion and how they might be solved. And like I said, Vice President Pence's classified documents, a bunch of things, all that and more, as they say. But before we get to that, well, one announcement actually is that Patreon has a new feature now where they're allowing folks to offer a free trial of the service. And so that that includes us as well. So if you are interested, if you wanted to see what it's like to be a sponsor, the wonderful world of Politics Guys sponsorship, you can do that now a month for free. That's the longest period they, they allowed me to set it for. So that's what I did. So if you want to check that out, you can go to, oh, it's patreon.com slash politics guys. I should have this memorized by now. Anyway, uh, so if, you, if you're interested, check that out. And if not, well, I guess, you know, don't. Either case, we're going to be back in just a second to get the show kicked off. All right, we start with this week, the Justice Department in eight states suing Google, alleging that the company has, in the words of the complaint, corrupted legitimate competition in the ad tech industry by engaging in a systematic campaign to seize control of the wide swath of high-tech tools used by publishers, advertisers, and brokers to facilitate digital advertising, and that Google's anti-competitive behavior has raised barriers to entry to artificially high levels forced key competitors to abandon the market for ad tech tools, dissuaded potential competitors from joining the market, and left Google's few remaining competitors marginalized and unfairly disadvantaged. And Jay, I think you'll agree that if even half of that's true, that's some serious stuff. Well, that's no good. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, you know, all kinds when of... The, when the, mod, when the mod company's motto, uh, informal motto, has always been, don't be evil. Yeah. Um, that's, um, that's, yeah. yeah, and, that and that's, evil. that's pretty evil. Yeah. And so the government's actually asking for quite a lot. They want the courts to force Google to sell off their their ad, well, much of their ad business, as well as, of course, to enjoin this, what sounds like evil and certainly anti-competitive behavior <laughs> in the future. And Google responded, as you would expect them to, in an online post Dan Taylor, their VP for Global Ads, said the government's attempting to pick winners and losers and that a ruling against Google would slow innovation, raise advertising fees and make it harder for thousands of small businesses and publishers to grow. And, you know, that doesn't sound good either. So anyway, further further allegations by Taylor, at least in response, is that the government's essentially asking for a do over of two Google ac acquisitions that the government approved itself well over a decade ago. And that's the acquisition of AdMeld in 2011 for $400 million and the 2007 acquisition of DoubleClick for $3.1 billion. 
And this is the fifth, count them, one, two, three, four, five antitrust action filed by the government against Google since 2020. And this latest lawsuit makes claims that are very similar to the one filed by 17 Republican states led by Texas in 2020 as well. So it sounds like everyone's ganging up on Google, Jay. Uh, what do you make of the complaint? Um, so. I'm always hesitant, right, when we've got these, here's a lawsuit, here's a complaint. Um, allegations are allegations, uh, right, in the, the beginning stages of a, of a pleading. So um, I'm always I'm always hesitant to comment on a suit at the initial pleading stage. Um, that said, like you said, if, if half of this is true, uh, <laughs> that's a problem. Um, you know, my sense is Google is the the 800 pound gorilla. It's it's the biggest uh, and and the baddest, so to speak. Um, so naturally, that's who the government's going to go go after. I I don't have the enough facts, right, to evaluate. Um, uh, you know, whether Google's doing something wrong or improper or not, and even so, antitrust is an incredibly complicated um, area of the law, and you start getting into you know, what is anti-competitive? And in some cases, you can have uh, behaviors that are in one sense anti-competitive, but at the same time also pro-competitive, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's it's a it's a difficult, difficult to wade in a lot at the complaint stage, um, other than to say uh, Google has, for a while, kind of also been, been sort of doing a public lobbying campaign uh, with other tech firms, right? Of, hey, don't regulate us, don't sue us, don't uh, block innovation is sort of the, the, the key phrase. Um, uh, and and apparently that that money has not been terribly well spent. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe they're just doing things that are so evil and it's actually forestalling uh, what what should have happened. It could have been worse, right? Well, <laughs> what I'm wondering is, you know, what do you make of the fact that this is pretty bipartisan? I mentioned that state, you know, that Texas law. So this isn't a bunch of you know big government people, big government yeah. liberals, right? This is this is the left. This is the right. This is really. Everyone, essentially. And I think they have some things to point to, like, for instance, you know, the, the fact that Google has been at between 80 and 90 percent, depending on how you measure of the search market since around 2007. They do have that that integration between the ads and the search. And on the face of it, you think, well, yeah. you know, the, the, it sure seems like uh, it sure seems like on the face of it, there's at least some sort of a case. Well, yeah. And that's what I'm that's what I'm saying is they're the, the absolute biggest player. Uh, so yeah, if there is going to be anything that this is where to look, um, you know, it, 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 again, it's difficult to say, are they blocking other, other folks from, from advertising? Are they, um, I, I can just say it's annoying as hell. Um, <laughs> if you ever like accidentally like click on something, um, you know what I mean? And then like, you're seeing ads for that product for, oh, sure. you know, just inundating everywhere you look, um, always and all the time. Um, uh, so yes, uh, Google on, made, the, on the very personal consumer level. Sure. Well, um, that, that would be considered actually some of that innovation. I think that Google is touting, right? Yeah, that you yeah, can get tailored yeah. ads to your experience. I'm not, and again, I'm not, I'm not implying that, that, uh, sending me a bunch of ads, uh, is an antitrust violation. No. Uh, probably quite the contrary. You're just anti-innovation. Um, That's what you're saying. I hear it. I'm just anti-innovation. Yeah, exactly. But, but, well, you know, I think that 
most everyone, well, not most everyone, but certainly I would expect this to end in some sort of a settlement at some point in the distant future, as as I guess I would a number of those other five lawsuits that I mentioned. I mean, that seems to be how these things often work out, simply because antitrust cases tend to be big and messy and almost by definition, they're against big uh, companies with a lot yeah. of resources. And oftentimes it's just in, in the government's best interest to say, well, if you, you know, so if you sign on to these, this sort of consent agreement, consent these practices, agreement. Yeah. then, you know, that that's, that's fine. And certainly Google is facing issues, even more issues in some ways in Europe uh, for, you know, similar practices. Well, the I, I would say the the EU is really a lot harsher, yeah, um, than what U.S. law is in terms of uh, privacy protection and in terms of antitrust protection. Um, it it is, uh, yeah, the 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 conduct is uh, seemingly more innocuous that you can get get uh, in trouble for, and the, the fines are uh, the penalties are tremendously higher than than what you face in the U.S. typically. Um, so no, I, I think you're right. I think this this goes on for a while, and they end up with some kind of negotiated consent agreement. Uh, the government gets half a loaf, and uh, Google sort of, um, you know, when you're when you are the biggest player, it's always easy enough to adjust. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, so I, I I also think that part of the problematic aspect of this is defining anti-competitive because for the for a long time now the sort of standard definition the courts have accepted has been uh, some sort of economic harm to consumers and that has almost always exactly. been defined as higher prices but here yeah. that 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 argument is difficult in a lot of ways in the tech sector when things are essentially at least in one sense free Right. And so the government is basically hoping to make the case that Google's dominance harms consumers more indirectly by, well, slowing innovation and decreasing competition and that sort of thing. That's a much harder case to make on the face of it, certainly. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's no, you know, the classic antitrust case is is price fixing. Yeah, and exactly. The, the, the evidence is in higher prices. Uh, and you know, maybe there's there is some sort of uh, evidence. Again, I don't know about commanding higher prices in the market for online advertising and so forth. Um, but but again, it's how you know how do you draw the the, the contours of that market that often end up um, yeah. uh, you know determining which which way the case is going to go. Because I think you know both. I put that Google's response and, and the DOJ complaint uh, right next to each other, but they can actually both be true depending on how you're defining the various practices and who's who's yeah. harmed and who's who's uh, you know who's not. And in fact, you can make a case that actually monopolies can be good for innovation because there's a kind of a line of thought arguing that if you don't have to worry as much about competition, you can take more chances and roll out more things. And if they fail, it's no big deal. You don't, have to, you know, that constant push of, yeah. well, we can. And so it's, it's not as simple as. Or if you have a, a, a common platform that works for everyone yeah. and uh, you know what I mean? Everyone Economies works off scale this and makes it and, easier yep. for other, other companies to innovate and, and work off that. Um, yeah, that platform. So, and, and yeah. then there's, you know, at what point then is the perceived or potential uh, effect to our harmful effect to consumers large enough that you want the government to, in effect, well, pick winners and losers, at least intervene in the market. And that's not an easy question because you're talking about projections about possible con consumer harm for products that haven't been inventive that would have otherwise. And that's that, that's pretty tricky to wade into that. Yeah, 
So yeah. and I'm, I'm starting to sound like a Google spokesperson here, but, 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 you know, I'll also <laughs> point out that you can make the case that there may not even need to be a remedy if, if people just wait longer. For instance, you know, we've talked uh, a little bit in the past uh, about chat GPT, right? Which has become a big thing. Yeah. Very quickly. And so we know Microsoft is investing $10 billion in, uh, in, dollars in OpenAI, which is the parent company for ChatGPT. They've already invested, I believe, $3 billion since 2019. And, and, you know, sure, while Bing only has something like 8 to 9% of search right now, I mean, there was a time, and 20 years ago, I know it was a long time, but Google and Yahoo were battling it out, uh, you know, each with around, yeah. I think, a third of the market. So things can change pretty quickly. And Microsoft, if it wants to, certainly can throw a lot of resources at that. I mean, they're the the, the second largest con company in the country, at least by market cap, right? A little bit larger than Alphabet. So I, I could see a case being made that, hey, you know, just, just sit back and let the market kind of do its thing. It might not be as quick as you want, but uh, we're seeing competitive pressures. I mean, Google has responded to the chat GPT thing with these all hands meetings and saying we need to innovate here in this space and so forth. So maybe it's less of a problem than we would have thought. Um, well, as as you'd guess, that's usually my approach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Work, work, work I'm, this I'm, out, right? This is like opposite day. I'm um, making Jay's arguments here, but yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and I think I think there's a lot to that. The 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 argument against it, and I'll make the opposite argument, is just the barriers to entry. Yeah. Right? Are there barriers to entry uh, for a lot of other players? Now, certainly there there aren't those barriers to entry for, say, Microsoft. Um, uh, but if you think back, also again, 20, 30 years ago, at the, the birth of the internet, there were uh, a, a whole host of of search engines yeah. uh, that you could use, um, and it was Yahoo and Bing and Google and and Ask Jeeves and uh, uh, Netscape. Yeah, and, and, a bunch. You know what I mean? Oh, there's. So a whole and and like a, a great many of these went by the wayside, either you know just went out or or, or bought out by by one of the bigger players. Um, so I mean I think there's also some historical evidence that that listen that if there is going to be that that innovation, it seems that no one else has been able to to crack that market, right? right. And you've yeah. got a uh, when you started out with all these multiple players, and uh, now now you are down to one essential giant, and then a couple other sort of competitors. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I, I think it, so. especially when, when you have, like I said, one, I mean, do, Google's dominance has been very solid for, well, since, you know, the mid 2000s, basically. So that's yeah. not a, I mean, that, that, this is not an evolving market at any, at, at this point, I, I think. So again, I think this is, I go back and forth on this and certainly like you, I, I am neither an antitrust expert attorney or uh, I have dug as deeply as one would need to in the immense complexities of this case. But uh, given those immense complexities, I predict that it will be uh, several years before we see any sort of a conclusion to this that will be somewhat unsatisfactory to both parties. That's my very, very, not very bold prediction. I, I agree. And, yeah. and I think uh, innovation will, will continue uh, regardless. I would, I would hope so. Certainly. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of related to this, uh, somewhat related to this, just before the Justice Department filed its lawsuit, Paul Pelosi, who's, of course, the husband of former speaker and current member of Congress, Nancy Pelosi, sold off 30,000 shares of Google stock uh, and the trades yeah, involving, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. these, I mean, we're talking you know, millions of dollars here. And in response to that, uh, just let this this last week, Senator Josh Hawley 
uh, introduced legislation, well, reintroduced it under a new name called the Preventing Elected Leaders from Owning Securities and Investments Act. And yes, that does spell Pelosi. And I got to say, I, I well, also sort of it spells Pel, Pelfosi. Pe, well, well, yeah, depending on how you use the acronym. But yeah. but, but as the, yeah. as legislative acronyms go, it was really good. That was a lot of work. I, so I, good try, yeah. I, I like this one. Yeah, actually, and I not only like the acronym, but I think there's a lot to be said for the legislation, which under various names has been introduced for for a while. In fact. The Democratic House uh, late in 2022 introduced something that wasn't quite as restrictive, but but they all have kind of similar thrusts, and that is some sort of serious restrictions on members of Congress trading stocks or their spouses requiring money to be put, requiring these investments to be put in a blind trust, that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I think there's a good case to be made for that, there's been research, uh, plenty of research done suggesting that it's not uncommon for members of Congress to invest in areas where they clearly have conflicts because of committees that they're on. And also, according to uh, one very extensive review of stock trading, at least in 2022, members of Congress outperformed the market on average in their trades. And it's reasonable to ask, well, gee, I, I wonder why. And uh, suggesting that maybe they have some inside information, I don't think is all that crazy. So I, I, I don't know if I'm exactly for the uh, rather very draconian strictures of the Pelosi Act, but certainly I think far more restrictions than we currently have under the Stock Act might be appropriate. What do you think? Yeah, I'm 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 sort of in the same camp with you. I don't go. Uh, I think it, this this kind of thing can be overdone uh, in terms of uh, you know reporting and restrictions on uh, on on income. Um, and and trades, but I think you could do some something that's kind of simple on basic principles that that says here here um, you know while while you are a member of this committee, and I think maybe you should it should be broken out into um, you know particular services or areas they serve, right? And the, the problems that in, in, inherent in Congress, and also uh, it's shown up in, in regulatory agencies, which I think is is even more more um, more uh, invidious, if you will. Um, but um uh so yeah i i'm i'm generally for the idea of of limiting uh congressional um yeah i uh, trading in 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 things that they're regulating um again i i i'm hesitant to go in for an all all in ban um i'm also not crazy about um you know huge disclosure requirements that are easy to stumble over yeah um, yeah and 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 might not you know might not be helpful really um, in preventing a real bad actor from doing something, but uh, it would just be another yeah. pain uh, in reporting and another reason for good people to say, I don't want to get involved in Congress. And, and I think that's sort of the some of those things you mentioned are the appeal in a way of an all out ban or you know, because given the nature of how people invest, it can be very tricky to say, well, I'm on the, you know, I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee. What exactly does that mean in terms of influence I have right. over XYZ company? And say instead of instead of that, just saying, you know what, put it all in the blind trust, basically. Uh, yeah. But but as you point I mean, out, I think that's the smart thing to do, regardless, right? Yeah. If you're in Congress, that's you know, I think the smart political thing. But but but, but as you often point out, uh, this doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Certainly, if you are uh, savvy or, or or crafty enough. 
you can you can find somebody to invest on your there there are there are schemes there are ways around a lot yeah. of this and, and in some instances very well intentioned reform efforts just basically drive more of this activity underground make it even more hidden than it would otherwise be and that that's certainly the opposite of what we would want to see happen yeah no absolutely um so i i would also say I, this is just um in in various reforms i i once spoke with um uh, someone who is a, a ohio's state inspector general talking about various reform laws and his his approach and this is maybe you know rough numbers but it was sort of in the sense of like, look, probably about 25% of the people uh, who come down here are going to do the right thing all the time, always, um, just that because they who, yeah, who they who are. They are. Yep. Um, there's about another 25% uh, who will always do the wrong thing. Who will <laughs> yeah, that's who they are. Uh-huh. Sure. Avoid it. And really probably any any sort of system you put put in, they will, they will probably find a way to uh, evade it. And the rest of the 50% are just sort of in the middle. And it's really just a matter of uh, increasing the cost uh, of trying to um, um, avoid the system, right? Right. Uh, that that what you want to do is increase cost. Yeah, you know, I, I really think though that in any whatever the, the idea behind it or how it might work, that the chances of anything significant happening are, are fairly slim. As I mentioned, there was legislation introduced in the last Congress, and you can go back almost every year and find something like this. I think it gets to the point that Congress doesn't want to uh, regulate itself. In a lot of ways, it would feel feel perfectly okay regulating other industries, which it's, you know, goes back to what I often tell students in my institutions class. It's, it's nice to be able to make laws about, you know, your own organization because you tend to be very favorable to yourself. Absolutely. No, I think, uh, I think we're pretty much on the same page there. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to uh, foreign affairs, Ukraine and tanks, I'm very excited about that. Let's just take a Quick break, and we will get right to that. So Ukraine are finally getting the tanks they've been asking for. Well, I guess, well, at least some of them. Uh, this week, the Biden administration reversed course and announced that it would be sending 31 M1 Abrams main battle tanks to Ukraine. It was only hours after Germany announced it would send 14 of its Leopard 2 tanks. And now that Germany has given approval for export of their Leopard 2s, which are used by 13 military throughout Europe, other countries are expected to follow suit. Poland's leading the way here with saying that it's prepared to send 14 of its 250 Leopard 2s. Other countries as well have said they're, they want to send uh, some of theirs, including uh, Finland, Spain, Netherlands, Denmark, Norway. And this, of course, is in addition to the previous announcement by the UK that they'd be sending 14 of their Challenger 2 tanks. And then there's also France. President Macron says that they might be sending some of their Leclerc tanks as well. And now that the tanks are on the way, Ukraine is uh, increasing its call for fighter jets, F-16s more specifically, which would represent uh, a significant improvement, even more so than uh, than, than tanks would. Though, uh, at least Chancellor, 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 I can get the word out, Schultz of Germany has said that there will be no fighter jet deliveries to Ukraine. This was made clear very early, including from the U.S. president. This position has not changed at all and will not change. And this came right after Germany announced the tanks being sent. Though 
That said, that used to be a position on tanks, and there are a number of folks who would say it's reasonable, at least potentially, that the U.S. will eventually approve F-16s to Ukraine, and that actually this will make a much bigger difference than tanks would, just because there's a huge capability gap between F-16s and and the Russian, uh, the MiG-29s that both Russia and Ukraine currently Use And to kind of bolster that argument that maybe it's a matter of time or if, as opposed to when, there was a statement this week from three senators, uh, Blumenthal, White House, and Lindsey Graham, uh, that read in part, while the tanks... That's a rare rare sort of pairing. That's a good point, too. Lindsey Graham, well, he does some weird things, you know. Anyway, so they, they write... While the tanks represent a tremendous upgrade in Ukraine's military, we urge the Biden administration and our allies to send more long-range artillery, such as uh, Actums, uh, fighter aircraft, such as F-16s and MiG-29s, and they end the statement with, let's give Ukrainians everything they need to win now. So, Jay, a couple things. Number one, do you think it's a good call on the tanks? And do you agree with uh, Blumenthal, White House, and Graham that we should give the Ukrainians everything they need to win now? Rare that I would agree with anything that uh, Blumenthal and um, uh, White, White House, House yeah. uh, uh, would say, but uh, here we are. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's in the United States' interest. I think it's the interest of Europe. And I think it's the interest of all the world that uh, Ukraine win this war. So I am, uh, uh, as I've always been, Mike, um, um, you know, cold warrior to the end. Uh, I'm I'm all for giving the Ukrainians whatever they need as quickly as possible. Yeah, and you know. It will take a while, certainly, for this to be felt uh, on the actual field of battle and several months for the tanks to get there. Then there's training and even more training and other issues involving the uh, the Abrams tanks. But uh, we also have to consider it'll be a few months before that. Uh, what's it called? The uh, uh, Rasputita, I believe, the mud season in, uh, in in Russia and Ukraine before that ends and they can Russia can gear up that spring offensive that I think everyone's expecting. Uh, and so, you know, this this makes me think back to some of our earlier predictions because the war has been going on for almost a, a year now. And, you know, my, I predicted that it would be very likely that Putin would, in the end, use either tactical nuclear weapons or some other sort of WMD when, when faced with just a the refusal of the West to give in and the near certainty of uh, his inability to achieve his strategic objectives in Ukraine, given Western, you know, the, the West holding firm. And, and, and I guess I still think that's, that's not unlikely, but I guess I understand the Biden administration's hesitation, even though I end up agreeing with you, because it seems to me the administration's position has been to give Ukraine just enough so that it can blunt Russian advances, but not enough so that it can basically kick Russia out of Ukraine entirely because they think that the solution that will be best for uh, regional stability, I guess, would be that if Russia ends up controlling small sections of eastern Ukraine and keeps the Crimea region and Ukraine's just going to have to live with that as opposed to Russia being forced out entirely or it's that option or use nuclear weapons. At least that that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, I, I'm still of the opinion that uh, I don't think Putin is going to go down that uh, the nuclear route just because at that point um, uh, he'll, he'll, he will have lost every every friend he possibly could have had. Um, and, uh, you know, they're 
as, as one of our listeners points out, there 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 tend to have, has tended to be a lot of people slipping slipping off balconies uh, in Russia over the last couple months. Um, that indicates that that Putin is concerned that uh, he may have some internal pressures uh, coming against him. Um, so I I think keep uh, keep up the pressure. Uh, you know my my prediction. Uh, you know last. Last year when the start was, you know, boy, the Ukrainians will maybe hold out a month or so uh, and that'll be it. And and thankfully, we were we were all incorrect on that. Um, so. So, no, I think it, at this point, uh, Putin is sort of in a downward trajectory. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, the, the more pressure we put on, the more uh, uh, in terms of, of military aid uh, and, and material going to Ukraine. Um, the more pressure it on, on him to negotiate quickly. Yeah, I, I just don't. Well, I, I understand your argument. And in the end, like I said, I agree with you. But I, I may be a little less convinced that Putin using tactical, a tactical nuclear weapon would automatically mean that he would lose his few remaining international friends. I think China certainly would would publicly say they were extraordinarily upset. I don't know that Iran uh, Iran would say much of anything. Uh, India would probably join China in that. But but I don't think that they would end up cutting off all ties and making Russia essentially uh, a pariah state. I think there are too many economic interconnections between those very large economies and I, I, but of course, a lot, a lot depends on Putin, right? On, on Putin's estimation of what yeah. China will or will not do. And I think that they're, they're a lot less likely to just cut off all ties, all economic ties because of that, especially given the fact that China's dealing with its own economic problems right now. And uh, I, I think they might be a little more reluctant to sort of let go of uh, the, the economic interactions with Russia at that point, which again is, you know, something like the 11th largest economy in the world. Yeah, but, but slipping by the day. Well, yeah, it certainly, yeah, it certainly has not been has not been good for the, for them. And the fact that Europe is at least a good part of the way through their first winter without uh, a lot of Russian energy certainly has helped because they will be far better positioned if there is to be a second winter. And I expect there probably will be at this point. You know, the other thing I guess I wanted to get into on this is. Congress approving more aid for Ukraine, because if we want to give Ukraine everything they need to win now, or at least in, in this next year, that's going to require not just the administration approving certain types of munitions or armaments or so forth, but it's also going to require more aid packages, more money being uh, being authorized for that. And, and you know, if we look back, uh, Zelensky has that joint address to Congress and over half of the Republicans don't even bother to show up. And then we have this week with, you know, Zelensky firing some top officials because of corruption allegations, things about Ukraine's military knowingly paying inflated prices for food that's supposed to be going to troops and uh, extra money being pocketed and that sort of thing. And, you know, this, this isn't an isolated thing, right? I mean, uh, just yeah. back last summer, uh, he fired the, the top prosecutor, the intelligence director, some other senior folks. So, this is a country with a hit with a history of corruption in 2021. Transparency International puts it at 122 out of 180. And, and that's lower is worse on that, though. I should point out that that number has been kind of slowly 
but gradually improving since 2014. That's when they had that re- revolution that that knocked out the uh, the pro-Russian president uh, uh, Yanukovych. Yanukovych, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, but 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 I can. My point is, is I can see a narrative for enough Republicans in Congress to get behind and say, well, you know, we're not going to give more money into this meat grinder, this, this corrupt government that's at, in this, in this war that just has no end. What do you think? Cause you, you predicted, yeah, I mean, um, I was more. No, and I'm, I'm all, I'm all for, um, you know, reasonable oversight. I think that's part of any aid package, right? I think sure. I've said that before that we shouldn't just have an absolutely no strings attached, uh, no oversight type policy right um uh, but at the same time um you know i think this is this is endemic in in any kind of war right uh it's that's you know it's endemic in human nature there's there's corruption and when there's a lot of money flowing uh people are going to find ways that 25 percent i talked about are going to find ways to to pilfer it and misuse it uh and and so forth so um but i think that is a lesser problem than the russians winning the war right I, if you yeah. have if the choice of two evils yes uh misfit government money uh or or uh, a russian victory um i can live uh perhaps not happily but but i can live with with some misspent money yeah um you know so i again i i think there's there's I, reason yeah. to have I, but, reasonable and, oversight but i think especially when the money's being spent quickly that's going to make it even more yeah. likely because it's hard to build in but honestly I, i'm with you if if we knew in advance that we could say well it, if if we get them 200 billion in equipment uh, and various aid right now half of that would be wasted but would end the war in 6 months i'd think okay that's I'm I'm up for that. That's fine, as opposed to yeah. dragging it out. But but I think that's not how a lot of people think. They seem to think that well, we can throw all this, throw all these resources at the problem, and yet have them be as efficiently deployed as possible. And that's just simply, I think, unrealistic thinking. Yeah. No. It's um, what's the 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 line of uh, in in war? No no you know plan survives first contact yep. with the enemy. Um, or as Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get hit yeah, in, in the face. face. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's just part of it, that it's, it's a part of, uh, government and part of war that, that there's tremendous amounts of waste and, and pilfering. Um, the other piece of it is though on the, the effort, if this is, you know, people believe this is a wasted effort. Um, I think that's a different question, right? I mean, Vietnam dragged on for 15 years, and there was the sense of we're not getting anywhere. We're not moving. No one's, you know. Afghanistan you know, for over 20. Not, yeah. Yeah. Sure. The South Vietnamese are not, you know, pulling their weight. Um, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but I don't think you have that in, in Ukraine. The Ukrainians are winning against, you know, what were incredible odds. Uh, and, and what everyone expected yeah. was, well, you know, the Russians are going to roll over them in a couple of weeks, and that will be the end of it. No, I think that's um, a, that's a great parallel because in in previous, you know, both in Vietnam, well, in Vietnam and Afghanistan, and to a, a certain extent in in uh, Iraq, you could say that well, we were kind of creating these regimes that didn't necessarily have popular support, and we were yeah. uh, we were holding them up essentially. Whereas nation building, yeah, so and, forth. Yeah, and clearly, this is, I mean, Ukraine, God knows, has its problems, and I think it's just you can't expect some sort of you know 
kleptocratic Russian client state to turn itself around entirely in, in seven or eight years. I mean, that's that, that would be just about impossible. I think Zelensky's done an awful lot of good, impressively so, in uh, a very short period of time under incredible stress. Yep. Which, you know. Yeah. It, so I'm, yeah. If, if you so were I in think, Congress, you would have seen him speak. That, you know, you would have gone. Because that's the kind of, if you were in Congress, you would have gone and see him speak. That's the kind of guy you absolutely are. no. You I'd, know, yeah. I'm, I'd go to see him speak, even though I'm not. In there Congress, you go. So, you know. <laughs> so there you go. So do you think that? Do you think this ends in 2023? Let's go a bolder prediction. I think it. I think it does. I think I, I made that as one of my year end predictions okay. that before before the year's out that uh, we'll see some sort of uh, peace accord. It'll probably end up, I think, with the Russians holding something. You know, in the Crimea is sort of a um, yeah. uh, fig leaf, um, but that all I think that I I do I I think that Russians are are having more and more internal resistance to this. Um, the Russian army has not uh, proven capable as people thought, and to some extent, that's not a story that uh, Vladimir Putin wants to keep getting told. Sure. Right? I mean, they're pulling up all these recruits uh, who are in some cases getting massacred uh, and, and you're seeing more and more, um, uh, you know, it's harder to harder to keep this story quiet in Russia. So I, I think um, as as things escalate, as uh, more people are drafted uh, into this unpopular war, there's going to be more and more internal pressure um, and external pressure just of, of look, if, if you if you either cut a deal soon or. Or face losing everything. Well, so. I think, and, and that's the problem: is that the longer you're in, and the more resources you throw in, the harder it gets to pull out. And and you have this, you know, that old that old Russian doctrine of escalate to de-escalate. And then each side saying, "Well, if we can only score one major victory and then freeze the lines in the place here, that yeah. would be okay." And, and so that that complicates things because I think it it becomes harder and harder for Putin to find that spot to be able to plausibly plausibly claim some sort of victory given all the things he's been on the record as saying countless times to the Russian people. And so that's why I find it harder to believe than you do that this is going to somehow end in 2023 because I, I, I find it hard to envision this ending in a way that's good for Vladimir Putin. And that's kind of the sticking point uh, as far as as far as I can see it. So I, I don't think it will end in 2023. That's okay. my prediction. So we shall see in uh, a little over a little over 11 months, I guess, at this point. So, you know, and, and kind of related to this is the story of NATO expansion, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. not too long ago, it was considered to be almost a slam dunk that uh, Sweden and Finland would become NATO members. There'd be a big party this summer and at the, at the NATO meeting and so forth. And uh, it, it looks like Finland is fine, but there have been some issues with Sweden, especially after these protests in Stockholm, where you had kind of far right groups burning, burning Korans and, and, and stomping on pictures of Erdogan, that sort of thing in front of the Turkish embassy. And now Erdogan That's saying, not helpful. no, and Erdogan saying, you know, you want us to approve this. And yet you are allowing these anti-Islamic protests. Well, we won't have it. And of course, because it needs to be unanimous. That's putting uh, it's coming up the works uh, more than a little bit. So, uh, why do you think we're seeing this response from Erdogan? Because I said I could say it's a response from Turkey, but basically Erdogan is the Turkish government at this point. He's yeah. a strong man, and so why do you think he's reacting in this way? And and how much of a uh, impasse do you think it is? 
Well, I mean, he's reacting that way because they're burning Korans in front of his embassy. <laughs> um, that's sort of the, um, uh, so uh, yeah, as to whether this is going to be a, a permanent impasse, uh, I still don't think so. Uh, I think, you know, this is, there's some element of this is just posturing for, uh, his home audience in Turkey. Um, uh, but, uh, I, I, I think, I think, Things will calm down, and I think uh, we will see the expansion um, uh, going in. I, I'm not sure what exactly Erdogan wants out of this. If you remember, I mean, he was sort of um, uh, on the fence. In our sense, was you know that there's some deal to be made yeah. at some point, and I, I don't know what and, that, and that I, deal I, is yet. I should say that Sweden has already agreed to certain concessions. A couple, of the two big things that uh, Turkey has demanded: uh, number one, they want uh, expedited extradition of uh, people that are are wanted under Turkish laws for doing various uh, terroristic activities that, that at least they believe to be terroristic. And and secondly, they want Sweden to just domestically crack down on anti-Islamic uh, acts and, and protests and things like that. And Sweden is actually to a certain extent complied, but they can't just hand over everyone that Turkey wants. And uh, yeah. I, I think so. I think there's some uh, there's some leverage, there's some leeway there, but I also think it's important to put this in the context of Turkish domestic politics, which is not a phrase I don't think I've ever I've ever uttered in my life, but they have elections coming up in May, and uh, right now it looks like uh, Erdogan is, he's not incredibly popular. He's it, it, The coalition of parties that are going to be running against him, they haven't announced the candidate yet, but it seems like the kind of whoever's running against him is sort of running neck and neck with Erdogan, according to public yeah. opinion. And so certainly he wants to shore up his his support before that. And so I wouldn't be surprised, assuming, you know, assuming he he wins, which I'm going to assume he'll win one way or the other, is that, you know, in sometime in sometime this summer, he will find a way to agree to this with a few more concessions. And then by late summer, you know, both uh, both Finland and uh, and Sweden will be will be members of NATO. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I agree. And once that's one of the, the good things about being a you know, when you're a dictator, um it's you can sort of declare victory at some point. Um and, and you know, most people will buy it uh at least long enough. So Yeah, well well, well you can I mean it's it's a power it's a it's a position of strength, but also it can be it can make you very very, very brittle. You know, because once yeah. once you start to see those cracks, and it's the same sort of logic, I think, with Putin, right, where you end up backing yourself into a corner and the only thing you can do, there's no way to step down easily. It's not like I don't think either Erdogan yeah. or Putin are going to have, you know, comfortable retirement somewhere, right? They've made too many enemies for that to be, yeah. I think, a, a viable option, which, again, goes back to why I'm skeptical about Putin being able to back out. But but we, we shall see yeah. on that. So anyway. All right, so I guess our bold, our not so bold prediction here is that by the end of 2023, NATO will ex, will have expanded from uh, 30 to 32 members, right? Yes, I that is be, my prediction. I should be writing this I will, stuff. Down I will stick with now. that anyway. So, all right, I, I'm with you on that one. Well, let's move back to domestic politics because, well, this week it, it happened again. Another top government official with classified documents he really should not have had. And this time it was former Vice President Mike Pence. 
And this came after Pence directed his folks to search his home and office for classified materials after the Biden thing. And yep, they found some documents. They notified the National Archives, turned over the documents. Spokesperson for Pence said a small number of documents bearing classified markings were inadvertently boxed and transported to Pence's house in the transition. Uh, and then on Thursday, the National Archives sent out letters to all of the living former presidents and vice presidents saying, hey, uh, you might want to check your offices, check your houses, your garages, what have you, and let us know if you have any more classified materials. And presumably, if they weren't doing that already, uh, Presidents uh, Obama, Clinton, Bush, and Carter, and uh, let's see, Pence, Cheney, Gore, and Quayle will be uh, having their people hard at it. so, yeah, another one of these things. So, well, what do you think, Chair? Are we letting these folks play too fast and loose with classified documents? I mean, do we need better controls over who's boxing up and moving this stuff? What What's going on here? It, it would it would seem so. I mean, there's there's also there's there's another argument that I think is not an inconsequential one that perhaps there is more stuff that's classified than needs to be. Right. Yeah. There's and that's that's kind of been a perennial Washington complaint. Um, and it's just sort of grown and grown and grown that, you know, there's, there's too many things are classified that, that don't really need to be. There, there's a, on um, that, Jay, there's a, there's this great, great quote from Michael Hayden, who used to be the uh, NSA CIA director. Uh, he said, uh, uh, one, one, he said, one day I got an email saying Merry Christmas and it carried a top secret NSA classification marking. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, it's just. <laughs> Ridiculous stuff, but right. but but yeah, I think and that's that's, that's of course is is the problem, right? That that the average person can't tell whether the documents that are being found are the nature of the uh, Merry Christmas or it's the nuclear codes. Yeah. Um my my guess is it it tends to be something that's uh, you know probably less dramatic, um, but but who knows? Uh, but no, absolutely, I think that that more more care needs to be taken in terms of how this stuff is um, boxed up and, and who it's handled by. Um, I, I, I can, I mean, it draws some, you can draw some lines, I think, as far as um, the Mike Pence story of, of all of these seems the, the least, it seems to be the least culpable, right? It does seem the most accidental and he turned it over as soon as he found it. Uh, Donald Trump, who said, uh, who, who sort of knew he had them, but just said, well, I declassified them. Um, uh, you know, is is something different, uh, and is, and Biden. The the concerning thing with the Biden story with me is the all the places that they're finding him. Right? It's not just it was oh it was this one box that we um that, that was misplaced or 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 that uh, you know we shouldn't have taken. So no, I think I think there's also um there's a sense I think of of privilege. Right? If you are the president or vice president, you I think can have a sense of, Hey, I can take whatever I want. Yeah. Out of these papers I'm, you know, um, who's going to stop you. And, uh, yeah. And, and um, there was a uh, wall street journal, uh, op-ed by Peggy Noonan. Uh, it was a, a former Reagan speech writer, uh, on why, uh, these folks take classified documents. And, and one theory she sort of poses is that it, it is just, uh, as dumb as sort of having a memento, right. Of, of, uh, you know, when I ruled the world kind of thing, right? Um, uh, you know, can you believe it? Here's a, <laughs> uh, here's this, you know, personal letter I got from, uh, from whatever, Putin or Kim Il-jung or, 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 you know, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. 
um, that, that there is just this, it's sort of a just human frailty, human vanity weakness that, um, one, they have this, you know, one sort of a sense of entitlement to it at the same time, uh, want to, you know, again, just have sort of a, a souvenir that, that no one else could have. Um, there's also with some cases, the, you know, the argument that, oh, well, I was using it to write my memoirs and stuff, which I think, uh, is not necessarily a bad reason, right? I think that's, that's probably the least, um, uh, you know, I don't know, scary, sneaky reason for for having this that it's you know for historical. So sure, sure, uh, it's sure it's uh, against the law, but I did it for my memoirs. Is that the defense we're, yeah. we're going with? Okay. Well, no, I'm, I'm saying I'm saying it's I did it for my memoirs is a better defense than um, I did it to make money off of my top secret information or I oh, did sure, it to sell sure. it to a foreign I, government. But, but I think the <laughs> defense. I think the defense to everyone's good, but. The defense that everyone but Trump is using is I did it accidentally, in which case it's actually not yeah. a criminal offense. It's, uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's, you have to knowingly do that. And it would, it would have been probably harder for Trump to make that case. And so, yeah, he went with the magical declassification sort of defense on that. Yeah. But, you know, the, the larger issue here, it seems to me, is, and you alluded to it, the classification over or misclassification. You know, back in 2016, the House Oversight Committee had hearings on this. And they concluded that in the last decades, that would be 2006 to 2016, the federal government spent over $100 billion on security classification, but that somewhere between 50 to 90% of classified material is not properly labeled. And I, 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 had, to, yeah. I had to double check those, those numbers. And, you know, this is a phrase I also don't think I've ever is, uh, issued from my my mouth is I agree with Ron DeSantis uh, who at the point he at that point he was in Congress and he said you know some of this stuff is ridiculous and there's an incentive to just take on more classification and uh, and, yeah. and, and this well not this year in 2022 Senator Warren in a hearing on the Armed Services Committee said that the government spent somewhere around 18 billion dollars per year on classification and only around 102 million on declassification her comment was you know that ratio feels off in a democracy and and i don't yeah. i don't disagree with with her on that and i don't know if you do either no i i i would tend to agree so we agree with both Ron DeSantis and Elizabeth Warren yeah. Which that just yeah. seems so <laughs> difficult to imagine. But I should also point out that this entire well, – keep, keep in mind, it's, there is sort of a weird thing, right, when both of them – and this is sort of uh, – both of them are, are legislators pushing back against, you know, what is essentially the executive branch here. So their their interests in some ways are kind of aligned, right? It's sort of a power play. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this quaint notion that Congress is an independent branch. Yeah, that, that's right. We, we sometimes forget that. Yeah, no, that is a good point. But, and yeah, you know, you should, I should point out that almost all of this, this is done through executive order. I mean, the current classification system we have is based largely on an executive order from 2003. That would be 13292 if you want to look it up and have at it. But I mean, it lays out the whole thing, who has the authority to classify, what can be classified for how long, how declassification works, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and President Biden could, you know, just change that whenever pretty much every president makes some changes to that. But the 2003, that was the last major change. So it it certainly is something that Biden could do, though he'd probably have to be careful in how he did it so that it didn't look in any way like he was trying to sort of change the rules to benefit 
Kim or his administration, though my expectation would be he would do it in such a way to make the make the rules harsher, you know, requiring more more safeguards and that sort of thing. But I would hope that we should we would see something like this out of the Biden administration. And I think it's it would be just simply wrong if they're not working on it and don't have something ready to go this year. Yeah, well, the, the Biden and this is something that's a little concerning and again, just goes to the the the, the weird way and in, in how these these laws and the classification stuff works. Uh, there have been some trial balloons from the Biden team saying that, well, uh, under an Obama executive order, um, uh, the vice president was allowed to see some some of this stuff. And it was sort of it, it rings of the same thing of, of uh, Trump's I declassified them. Um, that there is a sort of, well, I would have been allowed to, you know, but it, it didn't apply yeah, because but of I'll this, leave them in my garage. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you've been allowed to yeah. see. It matters what exactly. you're keeping. Yeah. And because we're talking about actually there are two separate but related issues. That's uh, the mishandling, knowingly taking classified documents and storing them in an off, unauthorized location. That's one right. thing. But also once you cease being president or vice president, then the Presidential Records Act applies and all yeah. of that stuff, classified or non-classified, is not your personal property. You have to turn that over to the National Archives. And it's been that way since, well, it was signed in 1978, but it didn't apply to the Carter administration, but every administration after that. So there there are these two separate things going on. So whatever the Biden administration people are trying to push is being like, oh, well, it was sort of OK. I mean, no matter how you cut it, he wasn't supposed to have any government documents yeah. like that anywhere classified Next or not. Same goes for Trump. Yes. Yeah. Or yeah. Pence. So, yeah. I mean, so do you agree with me that the Biden administration should be putting out some sort of executive order on this to, to tighten it, tighten down on this or somehow further do something? I'd hesitate to, to see more of it by executive order. I'd rather see new legislation. Right. But but given given the fact that it's always been done through executive order and that we're not going to get anything passed in Congress, I, I, I agree with you. It would be better yeah. for there to be legislation. But I think the chances of that happening are just shrinkingly almost. Yeah, I, look, I suppose slim. clarity is always better. Right. Yeah. So to the extent if there can be some some uh, an executive order that brings clarity, yeah. uh, I'd be for it. And, and I've been I've been very disappointed in how the Biden administration has handled this. I understand why they did what they did from a political standpoint. It's sort of the same logic behind every uh, uh, delay or cover up of information to the media, right? Because, hey, if it, if you can get away with it, then there's no scandal to talk about. And it's that sort yeah. of logic that drives a lot of smart people from both parties to do what end up being dumb things. But I think that Biden could at least... Uh, sort of salvage some of this politically and also from an ethical standpoint by saying, you know what, I screwed up. It was wrong. I tried to make amends and here's what I'm going to impose on myself and, you know, through this executive order. And if he doesn't do that, I will be very disappointed. No regrets, Mike. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah that, that's very, very, very disappointing. All right. Uh, so speaking of no regrets, I hope I hope folks didn't have any regrets listening to this last almost hour of us going back and forth. But before we do leave, Jay, do you have any recommendations, anything you're reading, watching, listening to? I don't know, whatever. Maybe you got a great hat and you want to talk about Bob's hats or something. No, whatever. I, you know, I'm in a, I don't really have a great. Um, so uh, I did just start um, uh, the Samuel Adams uh, biography. 
um, by uh, Stacy Schiff, okay. the author. Um, and I'm I'm just I'm just you know maybe fifteen twenty percent into it, but I really love it. And I again this is that's this is my thing, right? Of you know revolution and founding fathers and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it's it's uh, she's a wonderful writer and it's really uh, fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you just know him from the beer, it, it turns out he was, he was pretty involved in the American revolution as well. Um, but, um, and actually Mike, he wasn't actually a brewer. What, what the business was, was actually brewing supplies for home brewers, um, that hmm. people would, would, uh, brew their own beer back in the day. Cause that's, that's just what you had to do. Um, but, uh, no, just, just wonderfully written and exciting. Um, uh, about uh, this founding father who gets sort of short shrift in a lot of ways. So. Well, you know, I, I mean, temperamentally, I, I wouldn't see you as a, a Sam Adams kind of guy. You'd be more of right, the, the right. George he is Washington much more the or John Hancock. Kind of, yeah. yeah. So yeah. maybe I'd really like it, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, no, you, uh, you, you would. And again, it, it is sort of, um, yeah, Samuel Adams is, is, of course, more much more yes. the provocateur. Yes, I, I uh, than yeah. than statesman. Yeah, I, so. I have a long record of going off half cock that <laughs> stretches back decades, yeah. as as Jay will attest. So yeah, but anyway, I'll have to check that out. So uh, my recommendation is going to be a podcast. Uh, actually, it's my favorite podcast. That's not called the Politics Guys. Uh, that's uh, I've been listening to it for years. Uh, many of you probably know it's called Philosophize This uh, by a guy named Stephen West, and it's I, I'm kind of a philosophy nerd, geek, whatever. Uh, I love the stuff. And he has this great way of really being approachable and making sometimes very complex ideas, especially if you read some of the German philosophers, like, oh my God, what are they talking about? But you want to know, he is very approachable and down to earth. And it's a great length for a solo podcast. They generally track in at around half an hour or so. And I also kind of love the fact that nobody seems to know much of anything about Stephen West as a person. He makes it totally about the philosophy, which is, I think, really cool. And I, I am, I'm a Patreon supporter of Philosophize This. I never miss an episode. And so it gets my second highest recommendation only to the, the politics guy. So that's my recommendation for the week. And before we do go, I also want to say thank you to one of our newest supporters, Wade. Wade, we really do appreciate it. Uh, and if you're not already a supporter like Wade now is, we hope you will consider becoming one because there's just no way we could do this without all of you helping us out. And when you're a supporter, you get all kinds of good stuff. You get ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our uh, supporter-exclusive midweek show, ad-free in, in its entirety. There's our Discord group, which is always a lot of fun, very interesting, and uh, that's at all levels of support. So to check it all out, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you'd like to support us in other ways on Venmo or at Politics Guys, you can support us through PayPal and you'll find all those links in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you would like to get that midweek show, but you just can't support us financially right now, we totally get it. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get that taken care of for you. And regardless of whether you're a supporter or not, or a hate listener or what have you, if you could subscribe on your podcast app of choice, rate and review us, that would really help us out a lot. And finally, a very special thanks, as always, to our very special executive producers. They are a wonderful group. Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. 
We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you'll join us.